The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. And this week it's a very special episode because I'm in Amsterdam for one of the shows of the year. Vermeer at the Rijksmuseum. As an unprecedented 28 of the 37 Vermeer paintings still in existence are gathered at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, I talked to several people involved in the project. Gregor Weber, one of the curators, tells me about his new book, which reveals the depth of influence of the Jesuits and Catholicism on Vermeer. In the exhibition itself, I talked to Peter Roloffs, the other curator of the show, Ihave Slipper, who was one of the conservators, and Taco Dibitz, the Rijksmuseum's director. It's very difficult to sit down. I want to look at the paintings continuously because it's it's the first time in history that 28 paintings of Vermeer have gathered. Not even he saw so many in his own studio and that gives a fantastic opportunity to kind of get really close to him. Plus, we have a little cameo from the artist Alvaro Barrington who happened to be walking around the exhibition when I saw it and he tells us what he makes of Vermeer today. And I speak to Betsy Wiesman from the National Gallery of Art in Washington about their former Vermeer painting that they say is not an autograph work by the master. And yet it's in the exhibition here in Amsterdam. So before I take you into the Vermeer exhibition to hear from various people involved in the project, I wanted to first explore the man Vermeer. He is a mystery, the so-called Sphinx of Delft, about whom so little is known. But to coincide with the exhibition, Gregor Weber, one of its curators, has written a new biography which goes deeper into Vermeer's Catholicism and his links to the Jesuits than in any previous account of his life. I spoke to Gregor a week before the exhibition opened. Gregor, one of the challenges I imagine of being a scholar of Vermeer is to try and piece together what's really quite scant information about Vermeer. What do we actually know factually about his life? We know a lot about the life of his family, so of the family of his mother-in-law and a little bit also of the family of Vermeer himself. But we don't know much about his own life. So we have no letters, we have no diaries, we have no other sources where we can hear something or read something about the person, the private person, Johannes Femia. So this is a pity. Indeed, it is a pity. But what do we know about him then? He was born in 1632, but he was born in, into a Protestant family. And this is key in terms of your latest research, isn't it? Yeah, he is born in, into a Protestant family. And he is also Baptist in the Protestant church. But this is also doesn't mean that he is a member of the Protestant Church. So he, uh, if you will be really a member, then you have to enter the church in another way. So I think the family had been Protestant of his father, his mother and his sister, but not very strong. Tell us about the Netherlands in that period, because in 1632, they're still in the middle of the 80 Years' War, and also there is the 30 Years' War. So it's a tremendously turbulent period internationally. It's a very bloody period for Europe, isn't it? It is really an 80-year war, and the war stopped in 1648. This means that also then the war is going on, because there are other wars against the English, against the French, and so on. So it was really a a time of cruelty and a time of uh, yeah, war. 
And one of the reasons for war is, of course, economics, but another reason is faith. And um, the Northern Netherlands were Protestants or Calvinistic, but they were in former times, of course, also Catholic, and some of the Catholics remained. But they were not allowed to have official functions in, for instance, the administration of the city, but they were allowed to have hidden churches somewhere. But, okay, there's another way of living as a Catholic. Uh, when you see in the same city the great churches from former times, and now you are living in a hidden church with your faith. But in Delft, you had also in the mid of the 17th century, still around 5,500 Catholic uh, believers. This means a quarter of the inhabitants of uh, the entire city. And how scarred was it by the experience of being at war for so long in terms of as you say the economics and so on but but was you know was society very damaged by that lengthy process but in the way that for instance spain was impoverished by being at war for so long for instance yes it's funny to see that at the same time when the netherlands are so in war with uh, other european countries at the same time they are very wealthy because the trade across the sea with china brazil america and so on was uh, splendid so they earned a lot of money interesting difference, of course, between these two uh, ways of living. So 1653 is a really seminal year in Vermeer's life in two ways. Firstly, he's accepted into a guild, is that right? The Guild of St. Luke, which is essentially means he's become a master of his craft. Yeah, he became a master of his craft, so as a painter, at the very, very end of uh, 53, I think the last day he... uh, (laughs) He entered the guild. This means that from that date, he may sign paintings and he may sell paintings in the city. So this is the end of 53. But in April before of the same year, he married. He married a Catholic woman, Katharina Bolnes. So he became member of a Catholic family. And I would say not only Catholic, they were a little bit strong Catholic because his mother-in-law was a friend of the Jesuits. Too, and uh, she had a member of the Jesuits also in her own family. Now, tell us about his mother-in-law, because she seems like an extraordinary character. On one hand, she is from a patrician family. She's from a very wealthy family. But also, there's this really intriguing biographical detail, isn't there, about the marriage and her views on the marriage. Tell us about that. Yeah, the mother-in-law, this is Maria Tins. I think there should be a biograph about this or a novel or something <laughs> like that, because she... She's really an exciting and very impressive person. And she, uh, I think uh, when she died, she was 87. So she really had a long time to uh, to be aware of all the developments in the Dutch uh, country. She is born in Gouda, so another Dutch city, very Catholic. And there she had been a member of the Patricians. And uh, there's still in Gouda a very big uh, church window made or dedicated by one of her ancestors. So she came from a very wealthy family. She married herself, a very rich stone baker, so somebody who had a fabric. But she divorced from him because this man was cruel. And this is very interesting to see because divorce in that uh, century is not very usual. But this divorce took a long time, so we know everything about the divorce. For instance, that she didn't dare to go to the home of her former husband to get some special items from herself back. And she asked uh, um, the notaris to do that for her, for instance, to get the Canisius, 
this is a prayer book by the Jesuit Canisius, out of this house. So we know a lot more about her than about Vermeer, unfortunately. And this so wealthy and also so Catholic woman, she didn't agree at the first time that her daughter, Katharina, could marry Johannes Vermeer, this um, lower-ranking artist from Delft. In that time, not even a master. So only some months later, he became a master in the uh, St. Luke's Guild. So she had some hesitations. And there must have been a really interesting conservation uh, at one evening when a special group of persons came to her house and to ask her. And we know about that because the next day they uh, made a sort of uh, acts of this meeting. And they began read that she said, now at the first moment I was not willing to give my signature under this marriage of Janus Vermeer and my daughter, but now I don't hesitate uh, to accept it. I will tolerate and I will accept it like that. And then only two weeks later, they married. Right. But we don't know, do we, what the real concerns were, whether it was about, as you say, his status in society or possibly a religious concern because he had been baptised in the Protestant religion. Yeah, we don't know exactly what were the reasons. This is a pity too. So two possibilities, the rank and status of her family and again see of the uh, Johannes Vermeer. And the second, yeah, the faith, the belief um, of this uh, special family. Vermeer was not from a poor family, was he? His, he, his father owned an inn and was a, a weaver, is that right? So he was from a kind of more middle-class family rather than a, rather than working class, as it were. Yeah, his family was more from a middle class, where his father had an inn in Delft and his father was also an art dealer. So there was some money, but not as the Maria Tinso, his mother-in-law, had. In terms of his artistic training, what do we know? Again, there's scant evidence, but you do hint at how he may have come across his extraordinary skills. This is really also a secret or a myth or a, I, we don't know, because there's no document between his birth, his baptism and his marriage. So there is a long time from 21 years where we have no records about his life. So we only can assume that he went abroad also as other artists did to learn something elsewhere in Utrecht or in Italy or in Paris. We don't know. We can only see with his first paintings. And the first paintings are influenced by Caravaggist artists, maybe from Italy or maybe from Utrecht, where they also painted like that. And also a little bit of uh, Venetian artists, a little bit of Florence and so on. So there is an influence of not typical Delft art in his early works. So he must have been somewhere else, but we don't know where. Right. But we know that he did go on to be a famous artist because there are mentions of him. We don't have any letters from him, as you say, but he is mentioned as a famous artist in other chronicles, right? Now, it's really curious to see that he is mentioned as a really yeah, famous artist. There are two diaries of visitors. One is um, by de Monconi, and he is writing that he visited him and uh, he saw only one painting at the baker. And the baker had spent for this uh, painting 600 guilders, which is really a big amount. And uh, de Monconi was really astonished about that. And he thought it is six times or ten times too much. The other one is Peter Teding van Berghout, and he wrote in his diary that he visited the célèbre peintre, so the famous artist. This means that Johannes Vermeer was appreciated in his own time and also in his own city. He was two times the head of the St. Luke Guild, for instance. That means that also the other artists in Delft appreciated him. 
Right. So what did it mean to be famous in that time? Because, of course, there weren't museums in the same way that there are now. So in order to be a famous artist, what did that mean about you? In that special case, I think he was famous in Delft and maybe also in The Hague. The Hague is a very short distance from Delft. But Vermeer never tried to sell a lot of paintings in London, Paris, Antwerp or Amsterdam. He was very close in his own city. In his whole life, I think he spent 300 meters to the right and to the left of the new church in Delft and no more. This means he was famous in his own cities. He was, I think he really knew of himself that he was a great artist. So if you paint the art of painting, so the big painting in Vienna, then you know that you are a good artist because this is a sort of testamentary of his own art. So he knew it, I think. And of course, he was able to measure his own output against that of masters in the sense because he was a dealer as well. Do you know to what extent he was a dealer? Was he a renowned dealer in the city of Delft? Was he among the highest level of dealers in that city? We don't know much about his dealership. So we know that at his dad, there had been already 30 paintings uh, coming out of his house to another dealer to uh, to have the gilders paid. But Vermeer was also asked to come to The Hague to give a sort of um, expertise uh, on Italian paintings. And this he did, and we know also what he said, that all these things are forgeries and very bad paintings. So there he had a good idea about um, yeah, these Italian paintings. But he was not only asked, there were 30 other artists asked to, to say something about these uh, special paintings. This was a big story in that time about uh, forgeries which had been sold to uh, the elector of um, Prussia, of Brandenburg. So this is another story. But this means that he had been appreciated also as an art dealer. Right. Okay. In terms of his capacity to earn money, it must have been quite important because he had a very large family, didn't he? Yeah, Vermeer had a large family of um, 11 living children when he died. So this is really amazing. So if you imagine all these silent uh, paintings he did and then crawling around his legs, all these children. So there is a difference <laughs> between his uh, reality and what he depicted for us. So I think he had to earn money as an art dealer. He had inherited from his father an inn and he rented it out. So he got money also from that. And also his mother-in-law asked him to yeah, to arrange something for, with her fortune. So he has to go to the peasants somewhere to get the money from uh, them for the country they are working in and so on. So he, I think he, he was a sort of seigneur. So he is also called in documents seigneur. And uh, this means something of the status of this man in that time. And then it is interesting to see that he only painted such a small amount of paintings. So we know now today 37, we know of five more from old inventories and auction. Uh, so maybe he only painted 45 or so paintings in his whole life. This again means that he didn't care of being an artist like Rembrandt, who painted 10 times more and who made etchings and studies and drawings. And we have nothing of that um, from Vermeer. That's really fascinating, isn't it? And of course, one would imagine looking at them and everything seems to suggest this, that each individual painting must have taken a very long time to complete anyway. Every painting must have take time to think about, I guess, because all of these paintings are of a very, very high top, top level. 
But we studied them very carefully also with technical uh, instruments and so on. We saw that the underpaint is very fresh, virtuous, uh, vivid made. So the idea that he took six months to paint one painting, I think, isn't correct. Oh. I think he took only one month to paint a painting. But he thought... I guess, five months to get uh, the next composition, the next variation of the subject and so on. Right. Before we come on to the sort of key arguments of the book, if you like, I wanted to talk about the end of his life because it's intriguing. There's this statement from his wife about how he fell into a frenzy going from healthy to dead within a day or a day and a half. This is an extraordinary detail when we have so little detail, isn't it? I would say this detail is the only detail where we learn a little bit about the private person, Johannes Vermeer. So the widow is saying that um, he was, yeah, he suffered such a lot of the decline of the economics in the Dutch country after the so-called Rampia. This means when the French and other countries entered the Netherlands and the whole economy declined and he couldn't sell any painting, he couldn't sell his own paintings. We also think that he didn't paint himself in that time. So that there was really decline and he suffered because he had no idea how to pay the bread for his children and so on. And his wife is saying that due to these sorrows, he died within one day or one and a half day and in a sort of frenzy and was dead. And this is really yeah, amazing that uh, this is the only person I think and this is such a, a misery or such a tragical uh, end of this artist. Yeah. Let's talk about your book then, Faith, Light and Reflection is the title and the key arguments relate to religion we've already discussed a bit about his background and the fact that he married into a catholic family but the extent of his engagement with catholicism you're shedding really new light on this can you say something about whether there's new documents available that have helped you in this or is it just a matter of revisiting and revisiting and piecing together a different perspective on the narrative if you like now, what I did is to look deeper into also known but also unknown documents around Vermeer and his life. The known documents are, of course, all the things about his family. And we knew already that he had three sons um, and the three sons got the name of Johannes, so his own name, Franciscus. This means uh, from Franciscus of Assisi or Franciscus Xaverius. This is one of the founders of the Jesuits. And the third son had been called Ignatius. And Ignatius is really a very, very Jesuitian name because it's the name of Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. And if you call your own son in that time within a Calvinistic society, Ignatius, this means something as if you call as a Jewish person in Jerusalem today your son Mohammed, which is confronting something of uh, your uh, surrounding. So he did it. So we know from this that he not only married into a Catholic family, but also he lived this Catholicism in his family. And I also studied his home. So what is in his inventory mentioned? And I found that in the special room, he had a very great crucifixion of Christ. But next to it, the depiction of Veronica. Veronica uh, holds in her hand always the Vera Icon. This is a veil Veronica used to um, make an impression of the real face, the real existing face of Christ during the uh, 
Passion of Christ. So, and this is uh, yeah, the Veil of Veronica is the most important relic in uh, Rome, in St. Peter. So if you have, as a Catholic believer, these two paintings at home, then of course you are really a believer in that faith. Absolutely. And, and in terms of the extent of his faith, in terms of the facts of his faith, if you like, we don't know if he was converted, do we? No, we have no documents, but there are no documents about the baptisms in this Jesuitic hidden church next to his own house. This means that also we have no documents about the baptisms of his children in that church, but also not in the Protestant church. But we have documents about the little children, so the children of the children in that special Jesuit church. So they believed in this uh, Catholic uh, faith. But uh, what I also thought is, if you are the neighbor of such a Jesuit church, then, of course, you came across every Sunday uh, these uh, fathers of the Jesuits, and there had been always two of them. And they are important, of course, if you are uh, the neighbor of them. And all the girls went to the Jesuit uh, school for girls, also next door. So there is a relationship between Vermeer and his um, surroundings with these uh, Catholics. And... In their devotional literature, and this is something which is new for, which also had been new for me, in their devotional literature, the Jesuits take a lot of care of all things of optical instruments, all things of light, the light which reflects and refracts in mirrors, glasses, and lenses, and so on. This is surprising that in their literature, not only scientifically, but also devotionally, they used optics to, yeah, to explain all the things, what God is doing with nature, what God is doing with us, what is God is doing with our eyes and soul and so on. And of course, this links very directly to this famous idea that, that Vermeer used a camera obscura, and you link that to the Jesuits, right? Yeah, I, so we know that uh, Vermeer painted an allegory of Catholic faith, a painting now in the Metropolitan Museum, which will also be lent to the exhibition in Amsterdam. And on this painting, we have a globe, a glass globe hanging at a ribbon from the ceiling. And this is a symbol of the Jesuits, that this globe mirrors more than it can behold. So it, uh, the Latin, translated from the Latin, it is, it grabs more than it can grabs. And this is, of course, a symbol of faith. And Vermeer used it. And my first step was to look around this emblem, uh, in this emblemata of this Jesuit who wrote it, Guillaume Hesius, and I found in his emblemata much more uh, instrument of optics used for the same purpose to explain how God is uh, working with us. And I found also the manuscript of this uh, Jesuit. And in the manuscript, there's also an illustration of this globe. And this is much more similar um, to what Vermeer depicted in his allegory. There must be a connection of his thinking about optics and the Jesuit literature. Tell us more about that because it seems to me that the single most powerful quality if you like about Vermeer is light it literally makes those things that we're looking at manifest before us but of course if you take that extension of light meaning divine light then all of his works are then filled with this divine light they are acts of faith yeah so if I take it seriously that Vermeer studied 
these devotional literature of the Jesuits with all these optical instruments and above all also with the camera obscura and the camera obscura is mentioned there as an instrument which make images much more beautiful than painting and even in the preach on a special Sunday in the year they preach about the camera obscura making these uh, beautiful images then of course you can understand that an artist like Vermeer was interested in that and this is something which I think we see in his paintings he is a master of light but how to depict light and how to depict the special manner how our eyes are seeing are percepting light and what he is doing in this painting is yeah he knows how focus is sharp and other things are blurred and he is painting that he is painting pontelier little dots of light on a lot of things so there is a special knowledge of the images the camera obscura is producing And Vermeer is able to translate it onto the canvas or on the panel. And this is, yeah, exceptionally. You can now ask, you know, why not Flemish artists like Rubens, who, for instance, illustrated one of the treatises of uh, Jesuits about optics, didn't paint like Vermeer. I would say it is a very special talent, of course, of Vermeer that he could do it and that he was interested in that. And if you hear it um, yeah, every day, I would say that God is light. You can read it in the Bible, but the Jesuits stress this very, very often and very, very often again. God is light and we cannot see into the sun because then we are blind. But in the darkness, there's a little glimpse of light coming into a room. Then we can be aware of God and how it works. And therefore, the camera obscura, so the dark room translated, is a symbol for mankind on earth where we are in the darkness. And then the light enters the room and the light gives us this feeling of God. This is, I think, something which he was really uh, interested in, so that he, uh, yeah, he started to use this light. Not every painting by Vermeer is now religious, of course not, no. He also painted a lot of fashionable um, paintings with uh, girls making music and so on and so on. But there are also paintings where we can see that he used this knowledge. For instance, the allegory of faith and also the woman with the scales and of the balances in Washington, they are situated in dark rooms and there is a little bit light coming in and this means, okay, here we are. Absolutely. And of course, with the woman holding the balance, you've also got the last judgment on the back wall yeah. and her weighing up her own fate. So you, you do, even if you're absolutely right, one can't see every single Vermeer painting as an allegory of faith or an allegory of Catholicism. One can begin to sort of reposition one's looking so that, you know, this new information does shed exciting light on the paintings. Yeah. So the Jesuits also thought a lot about how light functions, what is light, and how light is entering our eyes. And they had also there some ideas that the light is entering via little specimen, via little parts. And yeah, if you then think about an artist reading that, what would I do to depict light with little parts, little dots, little strokes of paint? And you could also read uh, in one of the treatises that uh, color is mixed if you mix it normally on the on your palette, but you can also mix it in glazes above one layer and next layer on top. But you can also mix it in little dots so that these little points of color are mixed in our eyes. All these things Vermeer is doing. So I think he had a lot of knowledge about this Jesuit treatise and devotional literature. Well, Gregor, thank you so much for telling us about your book. No, thank you. It was a pleasure.
coming up, I take you into the exhibition itself and we hear from Betsy Wiesman at the National Gallery of Art in Washington about Girl with a Flute, the controversial painting that they now say is no longer a Vermeer. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. As the death toll of the massive earthquake that hit central and southern Turkey and northwestern Syria on Monday has risen beyond 17,000 people, the devastating effects on heritage structures in the countries are also becoming clearer. Among the buildings affected are the Aleppo Citadel in Syria and the Gaziantep Castle, a historic site in southeastern Turkey. UNESCO stated that it's in the process of compiling a precise inventory of the damage with the aim of rapidly securing and stabilising these sites. Meanwhile, the organisers of the Art Dubai Art Fair, whose 16th edition opens in early March, will donate 50% of online ticket sales to support victims of the earthquake. Federal prosecutors in New York have subpoenaed several auction houses for years of sales records as part of ongoing efforts to identify violators of Russian sanctions. The search, reported by Bloomberg, is meant to aid investigations into the use of offshore financial systems to hide art and illicit transactions. Among the ultra-rich named in the subpoenas are Russian tycoons Andrei Melnichenko, Viktor Vexelberg and Roman Abramovich, as well as Ukrainian billionaire Ihor Kolomoisky, whose home was recently raided in an anti-corruption bust. Auction houses linked to the probe have not been identified. And finally, new scholarship has unveiled details about the tumultuous Tudor and Stuart dynasties in 16th century Britain. Researchers have discovered more than 50 coded letters written by Mary Queen of Scots in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris, composed between 1578 and 1584 while Mary was imprisoned by her cousin, Queen Elizabeth I. The letters have been decoded and mention Frances Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth's first secretary who spied on Mary, her poor health and her conditions in captivity. And a new exhibition at Hever Castle in the UK has revealed that Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, respectively the first and second wives of Henry VIII, both owned a copy of the same printed Book of Hours, scriptural prayer books produced in Paris in 1527. Curators say that it marks a point of similarity amid the two women's disparate positions and Anne's aspiration to the royal status of Queen, which she would hold seven years after the book was produced, after the annulment of Henry's marriage to Catherine. The books are on show in Catherine and Anne, Queen's rival's mothers, until the 30th of June at Hever Castle. You can read all these stories and much more on our website at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. We'll be back in Amsterdam after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. The world's leading auction house invites you to explore over 100 years of art, creativity, daring and innovation in the 20th, 21st century art auction series at Christie's London. This season's live auctions will begin on the 28th of February with the 20th, 21st century London evening sale, which is headlined by two examples of Lucian Freud's rare explorations of landscape, formerly part of the renowned collection of Simon Sainsbury. Alongside this is Pablo Picasso's Femme d'Anne rocking chair and two masterpieces by Georg Baselitz from the Hess Art Collection. Other notable highlights of the sale include Alberto Giacometti's unique sculpture chandelier for Peter Watson, a rich group of German expressionist paintings, contemporary works by Cecily Brown, Liu Ye and Amoako Boafo and more. The exciting auction lineup continues with three other live auctions until the 3rd of March and the online sale of First Open, which is open for bidding from the 23rd of February to the 9th of March. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. 
So now, the exhibition itself. It features 28 paintings, as I said, of the 37 that are now regarded as authentic Vermeers. I began by talking to Taco Dibbits, the director of the Rijksmuseum, about what he felt now that it was finally open. I'm here with Taco Dibbits, who's been working on this exhibition for a number of years now, and you are finally sitting in the Vermeer exhibition here at the Rijksmuseum. Taco, tell me how you feel. It's very difficult to sit down. I want to look at the paintings continuously, because it's, it's the first time in history that 28 paintings of Vermeer have gathered. Not even he saw so many in his own studio, and that gives a fantastic opportunity to kind of get really close to him. It really does. And you've organised it by theme, which is a really interesting approach, it seems to me. You've not gone for chronology. Is there a particular reason why you wanted to go in that direction? Well, there are only five paintings by Vermeer that are dated, of which most are from either the early period or very late. So the entire chronology of Vermeer is a art historical intellectual concept you could say so therefore we felt also with Vermeer you don't have any diaries you don't have letters you don't have documents he wrote we felt that if you want to get close really to his world and to him as an artist you can only do that through his painting so we chose concepts which are very close to him and very close to his paintings which can either be the lure of music because Several paintings have music played in them, letter writing, but it can also be the outside world inside. So there are different types of themes. One of the things I'm struck by, we're in the room, which in a way is almost the only chronological touch in the show because it's all the early pictures effectively in one room. And I'm really conscious looking around me how big these pictures are compared to what happens next. Tell me about that. What happens in Vermeer's work that makes that shift to a smaller scale? Well, Vermeer's father was an art dealer. Vermeer was an art dealer. And he must have also dealt with Flemish Italian paintings. So they are history scenes from the Bible or from mythology. And they are painted on quite a large scale. Not massive, but quite a large scale. Uh, Some of them might have been painted as a commission, um, really, for in, in a Catholic household. And... The interesting thing is then you get a painting in the same room, uh, the Procurus from Dresden, which is a genre scene but still in large format. And then you go to the Dresden picture, which is the girl also dressed in a girl at the window, which is also quite a large format. A painting that's not here because the will uh, of Oldman it can't travel from the mat is a maid who fell asleep. And that's also a large painting. So it's not abrupt that he goes from large to small, because soon after that he paints the milkmaid, which is small. But there is a kind of in-between with a few large paintings. But in general, Vermeer's paintings are small, and that was also one of the challenges, of course, organising the exhibition. I'm sure it was. And tell me about that, because I've been through the exhibition, and I have to say it's so beautifully presented, and also it seems to me you've really built in this idea that there are going to be lots of people here, and we need to give them the maximum opportunity to see these things. Well, I think that it's the result of a very close collaboration or friendship with Jean-Michel Villemont, with whom I worked for the renovation of the Rijksmuseum, the installation of the Rijksmuseum together. And now, after 20 years working together, we know what we like from each other. And I told him the main thing is that we have 
eight galleries and we've got 28 paintings which depict uh, most of them very intimate spaces, intimate rooms. So how do you maintain that intimacy in the monumentality of the rooms? And I think he succeeds in a brilliant way, making it possible for a lot of people, even though his paintings are small, for a lot of people to see the show. But we do have to limit the numbers because its uh, he's a popular artist. <laughs> he is, and you've sold 200,000 tickets in advance. Yes, we've never before opening sold that many tickets already. So he's like, yeah, he's he's like a pop star, but with a reason because it's, yeah, the paintings are amazing and it's still incredible that he probably painted during his lifetime something, if you consider all the sources and what we have, something like 45, 50 paintings, but they're of such high quality from the start that you really feel he's through his father, art dealer, him and art dealer, always been in search of the best painting. And he's very lucky that he's the one able to paint it as well. <laughs> um, the thing about putting together a massive show like this is, of course, you've thought about it a tremendous amount. You've gone through this endlessly, I'm sure, with Peter and with the research team and, and with Gregor. How does it match up to your imagination? Oh, it's far beyond. And I think really a large part of that is how Villemot designed the show because we thought, well, maybe we would get 18 or 19 Vermeers and then now 28, which sounds like a lot because he painted so few paintings. But the combinations you can make in one room are limited. So in that sense, we were kind of playing chess continuously. What can go <laughs> where? And also some loans we heard very late that they that they could come. But it was really a now or never with when we heard that the... The Frick was maybe going to have a renovation. We thought, well, this is the moment that they have to leave the building. They never left the building before. They haven't been in Europe for over a century. And we felt now we have to do it. And we took the risk. And then COVID came, another thing that we... It was completely uncertain if it would be open, closed. But we just felt we have to do it now. So uh, we took the risk. And of course, one of the risks of doing those things is that, yes, you might get the Frick loans, but you don't necessarily know whether you're going to get others. On the one hand, you've got wonderful partnerships with fellow museums here in the Netherlands, but also a fantastic range of international loans. These are the jewels in the crown of so many of those museums, so they must have really believed in this project. I guess there is a once-in-a-lifetime feel about it. I think everybody felt it's the first retrospective, and I think probably the only retrospective that we've organized on Vermeer in the Rijks Museum in 200 years, so everybody also felt this is not just a Vermeer show, and they were enthusiastic with the feeling as we have to be there with this exceptional opportunity of the Frick collection because otherwise you can't see your Vermeers with those Vermeers and it's I'm just incredibly grateful that everybody was so enthusiastic and really did everything to make things come Teko, thank you so much Thanks. I'm now here with Ike Verslieper, who is one of the conservatives who's led the research team, who have really gone into detail looking at Vermeer from a technical standpoint. Ike, I cannot imagine what it must have been like when you knew those Frick 
works were coming. You knew you were going to get access to the Moritz House works and your own, and so you had a real solid project. It must have been a treasure trove. Oh, it was. It was so exciting. And these paintings have been studied in the past using traditional techniques. But now with our more recent techniques, we do find new things. So every time it was very exciting what we were going to find. And, I mean, we're a a big team working on this. And um, it's just (laughs) we would even send each other text messages uh, saying what we found or what we were thinking about. So, yeah, it's a very exciting project for us. And tell me what you found, because one of the key things, I think, is that we all, and I fully admit that I've felt this about him, I always thought he worked incredibly slowly and he worked incredibly slowly from the start. But you've learned a lot more about how the works began, what Vermeer did on a blank canvas, haven't you? So we found many indications of this first sketch that Vermeer applied, and in a way that sometimes you wouldn't expect. For instance, in The Milkmaid, he applied this very free brush strokes to give first indication of light and dark areas, and it's so different than what you see in the final paint image, and those are things that give you a really insight in Vermeer. And as well, what we found is that It appears like every painting he uses something different or he tries something different. So it appears that he's really experimenting a lot. And I can imagine that it also has an impact on how many paintings you would paint. In a sense that he couldn't repeat himself. Even though the subjects may be similar, he just can't repeat himself. Or he wouldn't. (laughs) Right. Yeah, Yeah, he, he wouldn't want to repeat himself. Or he was trying for new effects, really, whatever worked best for the image he wanted to achieve. And of course one of the things about him is that people in a way almost see him through a realist lens. People try to reconstruct his home to imagine the kind of world he lived in but he's constantly inventing on the surface isn't he? He's a painter who is using his imagination a huge amount. Yes definitely and also manipulating objects so it fits into the image that he wants to achieve. Absolutely. So tell me about his colours, because they are really genuinely extraordinary. They are, they are. Well, the interesting thing is that, I mean, he uses the same pigments that are available to other Dutch 17th century artists, but it's the way that he uses them. For instance, in Woman Reading a Letter, he uses in a very dark blue colours, he uses a, a green transparent underlayer, which is very unusual because artists would only use it as an upper layer, as a top layer. And because of this use of this transparent underlayer and then on top a very thin ultramarine glaze, you get a very deep, dark blue. So he's really playing with these kind of effects. And he creates this sort of shimmery effect on top of that, doesn't he? Yes, yes. He also plays with overlapping colours of paint, leaving underlayers open in certain areas. And that gives us this shimmering effect, which you see very beautiful in the contour of the jacket of the lady writing a letter. And one of the things, of course, about for me that we know is that he took things out and added things and so for instance you found out that there were some jugs in the background of the milkmaid and the milkmaid is such an iconic image that we couldn't imagine it any other way but it looked very very different at one stage yeah it is and we always knew that there was something in the back but we just couldn't really see what it was and now with this new imaging techniques it's much more detailed more in focus so that's why we now know that it's all these jugs hanging (laughs) Of course he used a huge range of colours, but yellow and blue come back time and again, don't they? Next to each other, complementing each other, and and in very different ways. No, it's true that yellow and blue are uh, recurring colours in uh, Vermeer's work. Of course, we see it often in this yellow jacket that is often portrayed by Vermeer, and we knew, of course, that he owned a jacket like that. And, of course, uh, blue is also a very important pigment in Vermeer's works, often next to 
yellow, you're right. I'm now looking at the love letter where we see it again, but of course also in the girl with the pearl. And then milkmaid, of course, so it's something that's really we see throughout his oeuvre. And I noticed that wonderfully on the view of Delft, the spire of the church is yellow and I think that's something that you see in the flesh that perhaps maybe in reproduction you wouldn't spot No, you're absolutely right it's so different to see these paintings in real life and that's also something that we really look forward to to compare these paintings in real life, it's so different than from a picture And then it's ongoing, right? So your project is not yes. at its end. No, no, it's not. Maybe it's just starting now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that we have all these works together is just amazing. That's really amazing. And we have the possibility that some paintings will stay longer for research. So who knows what we will find. I've always wondered, because of the Dresden painting and the Cupid emerging from the white wall there's the painting of the girl with the necklace looking in the mirror yeah and that has a very large white expanse of wall is there anything lurking (laughs) behind the white wall (laughs) well there has been research done on that painting so there are many changes in that painting but as far as i know they're all done by vermeer himself but then again that's also what we thought about the (laughs) painting from dresden okay it's all very intriguing. Icha, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm now with Peter Roloffs, the other curator of the show with Gregor Weber, and we're standing in front of the lace maker. And this is a really significant picture in so many ways. Peter, tell us why. Yeah, I think it's about, let's say, the technical way he is creating these paintings. So, how did they come along? How did he? How was he able to create them? At the one hand side, at the other hand, it's also more about his private life and the area in which he was living as well. Tell us about that private life. What aspect of his private life does it highlight? Yeah, so he, he was living at an area of Delft that was called the Papist Corner. So that was the area where the Catholics were situated. He married to a Catholic girl uh, when he was 21. But a few doors away from his house, there was a Jesuit school for girls. And when you read descriptions of this particular school, it tells about how young girls were educated not only in handcrafts, but also in writing and reading French literature. And when I look at this painting, I see a girl who is actively working on her embroidery, but there's also a book laying on the table. And I think these two components, they really reflect on that. So you're inferring it's a Bible? do you think? It might be, but it can also be just a, a book. Well, whatever it is, it shows that this girl was not only focusing on the handwork, but also would be able to read. Yeah, very interesting. It's also really important technically, isn't it? Because this is one of those works where you do get the impression that Vermeer, even if he didn't have a camera obscura in the studio, he knew about them and was interested in the optics they provided. Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important aspects of his artistry. I mean, the way he really knew about optical devices and when you look at the lace maker and you see how he's playing with depth in this composition I mean there is one 
single focus point, and that are the threats she is holding in her hands. It's perfectly sharp. When when you look at the threats which are in the foreground, they are blurry more. So so almost he, abstract. Yeah, almost pure paint. Absolutely. I mean, it's wonderful when you look at details of this particular painting. It's hard to imagine what we are looking at. But he is playing with us as beholders, but he's also playing yeah with depth and perspective in his own paintings. And even in this tiny little image, it's very small. We see that he's able to manage that. One thing to say also is, it's tiny. I was with Taco in the second room of the show where all the bigger paintings are and we talked then about how the scale went down but this is about as small as it gets, is it? Is this, is yeah. it in fact, is this the smallest painting? It's one of the smallest, there are a few but there are two of this size, more or less this size on canvas and the other two small paintings are on panel but I mean, this is where he really comes to the optimal focus, I think and yeah, he doesn't need any other... <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's amazingly impactful. And again, that's something that the, the advantage, I guess, that you have over the show, which happened 30 years ago, was in the Maritz House, which is a, a, a house, effectively. Yeah. Whereas here you have a big museum. And actually, yeah. these things hold the wall very, very powerfully. Don't they? This, yeah. this, it has a monstrous presence. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. No, no, I think that's what we are now experiencing. I mean, how powerful these paintings are, how clear he is in the way, well, as an observer, but also as a storyteller. And I think every single painting shows, well, another aspect of his craftsmanship and of his artistry. And it absolutely shows how innovative Vermeer was and how experimental he was as well. And I think by having all of these paintings together, well, we're really coming closer to Vermeer than we've ever been. Absolutely. I talked to Ike a little bit about how experimental his technique was, but also how much imagination is a key component in his work. And it's wrong to think of him as a, as a realist in some yeah. way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, that's been written in the past. Of Vermeer as a kind of photographer avant la lettre. Huh? I mean, yeah. a guy who's walking around with his camera obscura or something like that and just depicting what was in front of him. But you really see him thinking. I mean, I think most of the whole painting process must have been thinking. And then he started painting. But during the painting process, he was improving himself all the time, taking things away, adding other things. Just, I mean, apparently there was one single perfect composition, and that's what he was aiming at all the time. Absolutely. You see that sort of, you know, I'm not going to claim him as a, an avant la lettre conceptualist, but I wonder if that is the kind of key to why he continues to enthrall us so much now, because he does think about us. He does think about looking and about our looking as well as his own looking. It seems to me that's really important, isn't it? Absolutely. So he's fully aware of the beholder. And sometimes we're invited to participate in his scenes. Other times, well, we're just put aside and we're rejected more or less. It's also in the way he's placing furniture. Sometimes there's a chair in front of us and the protagonist in the painting. So that's something he's doing all the time. I think it's really nice also in the way he's thinking of sharpness, for example, distance and what is more removed, that he knows yeah, something about what, let's say the, the, the thickness of air is huh? I mean he knows physically that there is something happening between our eye and the paintings he's created and I think yeah that makes him an unbelievable observer and that's what Vermeer is I believe and also as you say in that experimentalism there's a tremendous amount of daring I was really conscious looking at the lute player the head of the lion 
on the chair yeah. is basically the same size as her head. Yeah. You see this big black shadow yeah. almost in the centre of the picture. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And the same, I think, with the officer and laughing girl. I mean, he is in front of the composition, big black hat, and she's a little bit more in the back. But he's playing with sizes and... Yeah, the shapes as well, and uh, he's very much aware of that and the effects of that as well. I've asked Taco this, I'm going to ask you too. You were playing around with this exhibition for a very long time before it actually came onto the walls of the Rijksmuseum. Is it what you hoped for? How do you feel in front of it all? I mean, when you're asking, I almost feel a physical kind of reaction first. I mean, we've been working on this for eight years. And for a long, long time, we thought it would be impossible to do another Vermeer show. I mean, the first were 30 years ago. We thought it will never be possible to do so. But thanks to the generosity of our colleagues of the Frick Collection, I mean, that was the fundament. We're now here. Then the generosity of all of the other colleagues. And, I mean, we never thought it would be possible to do this. And having more paintings together now than Vermeer probably himself saw at the same time, it's, it's really incredible. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you. In the exhibition, I've been very fortunate to bump into Alvaro Barrington, the artist, and he is here with a sketchbook, actually, drawing, responding to a Vermeer. Alvaro, I just want to ask you, what's this experience like for you as an artist looking at one of the great artists of history? It's an incredible honour because I guess my talking point that I, I kind of think through is that there's a few artists who point us as a society in a certain direction. And so someone like Michelangelo points us in the direction of the idea of the individual as a kind of God-given right. And I think Vermeer becomes someone who picks up on another kind of idea that we hold dearly in Western society, which kind of centers around trade, ideas of desire. There's a very beautiful painting where it's a Japanese heating stool that clearly they had gotten this concept from Japan. And now in this very cold weather, they're able to bring that into the culture. And so you see so many concepts that we hold really dearly in our modern day society. It's really interesting that thing about trade, because of course, so much the focus of this exhibition in terms of the catalogue and everything else, it's about light, it's about colour and, and everything else. But you're right in pointing out that you know, Vermeer is undoubtedly part of an imperial society. He is part of a society that's built on trade, whose material wealth emerges from trade. And that is present in, in the works, isn't it? I think so. I think there's many ways to sort of look at it. And I think, in a way, he's looking at it without necessarily so much today where we would probably kind of say as the Marxist critique of capitalism. Here he's really looking at it as a sort of, as someone who's deeply sensitive to how it has affected his life from an ability to sort of access certain things. But also you see certain things like this idea of desire, right? And so you have like famously the girl with the pearl earrings, which is really like I mean, the way her lips is formed, the way she stares back at you. I think what you're seeing in this work is a really contemporary look at how material desire is playing out. And what I think is oftentimes a kind of, what many people will hope is a more pure form of desire and material desire. I love 
materials, I love things. So I don't necessarily have the same kind of judgment, but you could see him looking at it like she knows she's beautiful with this earring on. And I think there's something special about that. I think there's something special about adorning yourself with something that makes you feel wanted makes you feel seen Mm -hmm. that's sort of a deep human condition today in western society Mm. and i think he is holding this truth without necessarily a judgment and i think oftentimes in the kind of divisiveness of society today it's able to cut through isn't it in a way that some artists from that very same period even from the same parts of the world the same town Mm. you know somehow other artists seem more remote to us for me it cuts through all of that we we know we're looking at works from the 17th century but somehow it feels like they're with us somehow still yeah yeah I think those desires are still with us I think it's interesting because if you look at Rembrandt I actually feel the imperialism in his work with Vermeer I see someone who is thinking about longing thinking about the outside world it's not so much like when you look at a, a Rembrandt figure you could just feel this person wanting to have dominated the other places whereas he's just so much about what it has brought to him. It almost is like a prelude to Jeff Koons and the new right? There's a direct lineage between Vermeer Ed Hopper, the modernist French painters who kind of rediscovered him and Jeff Koons and I think about where we are today I think we're kind of rubbing up against many of these sort of questions that was deposited in this period in time. And where do we go from here, from the legacy of this moment? I think you're seeing a lot of those questions being asked from especially younger folks who kind of want to imagine different things. I think in, in an interesting way, Vivian Westwood, who passed away, is maybe an exact reaction, but also still playing with desire. But it's very hard to imagine that if you go to Lori's side today, there's still this sort of punk rock scene that Vivian deposited in the culture, but it very much is in conversation with this moment. Alvaro, thank you so much no, for talking thank to you. me. Vermeer is at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam until the 4th of June. Gregor Weber's biography of Vermeer is out now, as of course is the exhibition catalogue. And finally, in this special episode all about Vermeer, we're going to focus on a work which has proved controversial in Vermeer scholarship. The work is in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and it's called Girl with Flute. In a recent exhibition and catalogue called Vermeer's Secrets, the National Gallery of Art said that it no longer regarded the painting as an authentic Vermeer, and yet it's in the Rijksmuseum exhibition as an authentic painting. I spoke to Betsy Wiesman, the curator at the National Gallery, who put together that show about the work. Betsy, before we talk about the latest scholarship, I wonder if we just talk about what the painting depicts, what we're looking at, really. So tell me about Girl with the Flute. Sure. It's a small, intimate, close-up view of a young woman wearing a domestic fur-trimmed jacket with a big pyramidal hat on her head. What is wonderful about it is that it's a very intimate work. She looks straight out at the viewer, and you feel a sense of engagement with her. 
It's called Girl with a Flute for the obvious reason that she holds in her hand a small flute or recorder. Absolutely. And she's wearing a costume, which is also rather beautiful, isn't it? This lovely kind of fur trimmed blue green tunic, which which is a really marvellous piece of costume, actually. Yeah, the garment that she's wearing is called a yak, J-A-K. And it was ubiquitous in the 17th century. All women of every class and income level wore something similar around the house, Obviously, you know, a fur-trimmed one in velvet or silk would be an expensive garment, but then there were also similar ones for women of lesser means. And then, of course, there's this remarkable hat. Tell us about that. Yeah, the hat is fascinating. It does not, as far as we know, reflect anything of 17th century women's fashion, And it seems to be maybe inspired by Chinese hats, um, these sort of pyramidal hats that were woven from bamboo or straw. But in this instance, seems to be covered in a striped fabric. We don't have any examples surviving that reflect this. So was it an invention on the part of the artist? Really interesting. And then has it ever been identified what's in the background? It looks like a tapestry. It could be a painting. What are we looking at? It's most likely a tapestry. It's not rendered with enough specific detail to be able to identify it and relate it to a specific example that we know. But generically, it looks like a 16th century tapestry that might have been produced in Flanders. In terms of locating the painting in Vermeer's studio, is there anything like, for instance, the objects in the background, furniture or anything that directly relates to anything in Vermeer's other paintings? Well, I think all of the elements within the painting relate to things that we see in paintings by Vermeer. For example, the painting of woman wearing a red hat has a very similar tapestry in the background, very similar chairs with those lion's head finials appear in many, many works by Vermeer. So all of those compositional elements are very familiar to us from paintings by Vermeer. And when did the first doubts about this painting emerge or has it ever been shrouded in doubt to a certain degree? The painting entered the National Gallery in 1942 as a painting by Vermeer. But very soon, I mean, literally within a decade, people started questioning it as a painting by Vermeer. And thanks to research that Arthur Wheelock and colleagues did in the early 1970s, from that point onward, it was classified as either circle of Vermeer or attributed to Vermeer. Right. So this is so interesting because if we're talking about circle of Vermeer, it kind of runs counter to lots of assumptions that have been made about him working as a solitary artist, right? So how does one square it not being a Vermeer with the fact that we thought he worked on his own? You know, it's fascinating amalgamation of connoisseurship and scientific research and also the sorts of terminology that we use to classify artworks that are not by a named artist, but what are 
the terms that we use to describe the relative closeness of those objects to the named painter. And this is a very soft and subjective area. Um, so what we in our research have tried to do is to be absolutely clear in how we define those terms attributed to circle of, studio of, to describe in relation to this painting some very specific circles of influence. There was a few years ago an exhibition that was at the National Gallery of Art and the Louvre and the National Gallery in Dublin that addressed this very issue of artists who were influenced by Vermeer and also artists who influenced him. So it was, the influence was flowing back and forth. And that also factored into our thinking about this specific painting. Right. So tell us, you had this moment, effectively, the coronavirus break where the gallery was closed and so on. Did you already know that you were going to do analysis and bring it forward? Or was it like, okay, there's no one here, we can take them off the walls and analyse them now? (laughs) Well, it was already on our short list of research projects that we wanted to dig into. But when the coronavirus hit, the gallery was closed to the public. We realised we would never have an opportunity like this to have the four paintings by and associated with Vermeer in the lab, you know, and to be able to study them interchangeably to apply one sort of imaging research to one painting, then immediately compare it with the next painting and the next painting and the next painting. I mean, that was an absolutely unique experience. It was great, and I hope we never have the chance to repeat it again, <laughs> if, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it really does. Yeah, very much so. So let's talk then about what you found, because it's really instructive, that idea about comparing it with works that you know are absolute undisputed masterpieces by Vermeer. Because when I look at this work, I immediately sort of have certain doubts of my own, and I presume those have, have guided a lot of those concerns over the years. Absolutely. And I should preface this by saying how the painting was described and categorized when we went into our research. In 2019 and leading up to that, it was as attributed to Vermeer. And the working hypothesis was that Vermeer started the painting, which sort of explained its similarities to other paintings by Vermeer, but then that another artist stepped in and completed the painting. And that accounted for the qualitative differences in the painting we see, which just in many respects does not measure up to other paintings that are by Vermeer. It's something in the fineness of the handling, isn't it? I mean, I'm looking at it and thinking that there's a sort of rawness in it that you don't really see in other Vermeers. There are, you know, little things throughout. The awkwardness of the body positioning, the body proportions. The face is just not as sensitive or as smoothly executed as other paintings by Vermeer. 
there were many challenges in this research. And, you know, I have to say the solution that we arrived at ultimately, that this was Studio of Vermeer, we discussed this endlessly amongst our team, which consisted of curators and art historians, conservators, research conservators, research scientists, and imaging scientists. So from multiple perspectives. Right. And Studio of Vermeer then means that it was done by somebody else and we don't think that Vermeer touched it? Correct. One of the things that we came to realise was that in no stage in the execution of the painting did it appear that Vermeer was involved. So from the preparation of the ground layer to the initial sketching out to the blocking out with different colored paints of the forms in the composition to the final paints, at every layer of the painting, there was some fatal flaw that an experienced artist like Vermeer at this stage in his career simply would not have made. That's really fascinating. And of course, now it's displayed as a Vermeer in the Rijksmuseum. Right. To me, I think this is wonderful. I'm sure there are people that will say it will turn it into a row between major institutions. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) But to me, it's wonderful that there's live scholarship about Vermeer still active right now. We're still talking about these extraordinary and frankly mysterious images. Exactly. And my colleagues and I here at the National Gallery of Art have a very close, long-standing professional relationship and also personal friendships with our colleagues at the Rijksmuseum. So, you know, a lot of press has really focused on, oh, these two institutions are, you know, having this battle, you know, swords are drawn. It's absolutely not like that. Obviously, as researchers and scholars, we'd love it if everybody agreed with our findings. But Just as you said, you know, the fact that this, after 400 years nearly, is still an active debate and an ongoing discussion, I find fascinating. And in the small exhibition that we did, one of the most rewarding things was to see visitors in front of this painting and the painting of the woman with the red hat so actively engaged in looking and comparing and studying. And if they came away and said, yeah, I don't believe, I think that is a painting by Vermeer. Well, they're looking, they're actively engaged and they're thinking. And to me, that is really wonderful. Absolutely. I was going to say that in a way, the good fortune of having the woman in the red hat with this painting together. They're very similar, the most similar of any of Vermeer's other paintings, right? It seems to me that that must have been really helpful because it's an extraordinarily refined image in comparison to this. Was that in a way the most important comparison or did you find just as much value from the other works in the collection? Well, it was, as you say, the most direct comparison because they're both these small scale works called tronies, just focusing on you know, a half-length image close up of a single figure. They are both uniquely for Vermeer, painted on wooden panels. 
similar compositions, you know, so similar in aesthetic and impact. But at the same time, very much part of our thinking was the fact that these are exceptional paintings within those paintings associated with Vermeer. So we might find a direct point of comparison between the woman with the flute and the woman with the red hat. But you know, we have to step back and think about the other paintings by Vermeer. So not just the two genre paintings in our collection, but also looking to data and research into the larger oeuvre of Vermeer. Lastly, because, of course, you've now said this is Studio Vermeer, is the hunt now on to find whoever that was that made this painting and perhaps others? Sure. And this is another fascinating thing. You know, we as researchers, as members of the museum going public as humans, we want certainty. We want answers. We want the definitive name to associate with any given object. That may never happen. And I think part of the fascinating challenge about this painting and about this whole situation is schooling ourselves to live with that degree of uncertainty. I find that Yes, it's a little bit unsettling, but I love the way it opens up how we think about art and how we think about the process of creation and creativity and recognize that it's not just the named artist that may be involved in the creation of an object. And there are so many artists whose names have been lost to us that we're likely responsible for many of the objects that we see in museums today. And if we can present that way of thinking to our audiences and have them, you know, get their teeth into that sort of idea, that is larger than any single attribution. One very final thing. Is it possible, as has been suggested, it may have been Vermeer's daughter that painted this painting? You know, we don't know anything about the activities of Vermeer's daughter, his eldest daughter, Maria, or any of his other children. We have no record that any of them were in any way involved in the arts Sure, it's possible, but we don't know. It's certainly an attractive hypothesis, and I can't eliminate it, but I can't come up with anything to prove it either. Betsy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Gregor, Taco, Iha, Peter, Alvaro and Betsy. Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.